chapter 16, verses 1 to 13, and I will tell you what page to find it on in just a moment. It's on page 287 of your pew Bibles. So the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled where they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then made Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Send for him, said Samuel. We will not sit down until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And Samuel then went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Let's be to God. John. May I pray for you? Let's pray together for John as he brings um, God's word to us. Lord, we just thank you for John. Thank you for his insight into your word, as well as his love for you. We just pray your anointing on him now. As he preaches your word, may he preach boldly the words you have given. And may you know your peace in his heart. Amen. Thank you. It was lovely to have a band here this morning. Before the service, John called them a scratch band. They certainly scratched where I was itching today, so that's very nice. Andrew, 
A round of applause for Andrew. He's been up all night with street pastors. So it's wonderful. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Andrew has permission to snooze for the next uh, few minutes. That does not extend to the rest of you, if you wouldn't mind. Well, today we start a series on the life of David, and it's a, it's a great subject to be studying. David was a shepherd, uh, a warrior, a leader, a king, a husband, a father. He showed extraordinary faith, but he was also prone to spectacular failures. And really, because we see him warts and all, successes and failures, we can identify with him. You know, we fail too. And we see him in all his humanity. And we get that feeling that he's got the same struggles that we have. Discovering that with God, failure does not mean rejection, as David will show us. That's a huge encouragement. And uh, the heights of his faith will, I trust, inspire us to believe and attempt great things for God in our walk with him. I think this is going to be a great series. And uh, we start today at the beginning, which according to Julie Andrews is a very good place to start. Now from our, our reading, we could um, spend some time on Samuel, but actually our concern is for David. So we're going to skip over Samuel's bit. If you want to look at that in home groups, I, there's some good stuff there. So our concern is for David and his call and his anointing. That's going to be our focus this morning. A man went into a bar. And on the top of the bar, there was a hamster playing a piano and a frog singing Royal Britannia. And he said that's that's amazing. I've never seen anything like that before. And he said to the barman, I'll give you a fiver for the frog. And the barman thought about it for a little while. He said, okay, yeah, okay. So he gave him a fiver and the man, the frog, and took him away. And somebody was sitting at the bar and he said to the barman, you are nuts. That frog is worth more than a fiver. A frog that sings Royal Britannia, that's worth more than a fiver. And the barman shook his head and said, no, not really. The, the hamster is a ventriloquist. <laughs> Things are not always what they seem. Samuel was looking for the next king. Been told it would be in Jesse's family. He started looking at Eliab and by any measure they, he looked like king material. He was a fine looking, big, strong young man. And after all, that's what Saul, the previous king, had been like, and that's what kings are supposed to be like. And even Samuel, a man of God, revered by all the people as God's messenger, was taken in. And Samuel had to be reminded by God quite sharply, you're looking at the wrong thing. It's not about how you look. It's not even about your obvious skills and abilities, which are important. It's what's on the inside that counts. Eliab was the frog. He looked good, but underneath there was no real substance. And one after the other, the seven sons of Jesse are paraded and rejected. And eventually Jesse admits that there is one more, David, 
youngest, and he's sent for from his position tending the sheep. And when he arrives, immediately, God says to Samuel, this is the man, rise and anoint him. David would have been quite young at this point, possibly in his early teens, referred to basically as the baby brother, the most unlikely choice for the next king. I said at the first service that the bookies would have had him as a rank outsider, possibly a thousand to one or more. And then we, we debated for a moment whether they had bookies in those days. And um, I said that bookies are like cockroaches. They always were and they always will be. So there we go. But this, this is God's way. He does not make obvious choices when he needs someone to do a job. Look through the Bible. Look at Moses. Moses was very reluctant. He was not a very good speaker. He'd been 40 years in the desert looking after sheep. You would have thought he was ill-equipped to lead the people out of slavery in Egypt. But God chose him. Jonah. Jonah was a scaredy cat who ran away to try and avoid God's calling. Look at the disciples that Jesus picked. They are hardly an inspiring bunch. Peter, quick to open his mouth and then put his foot in it. Usually more than one foot and an elbow as well. Um, Doubting Thomas, not very inspiring member to choose for your team. James and John, sons of thunder, they sound like trouble. And then Matthew, a dodgy tax collector, not to mention Judas. And, you know, we all know how that turned out. And the rest of them, fairly anonymous, innocuous bunch. I doubt if any of you can even give me their names. And you say, really, Jesus? This is the team that you have chosen. These are the people that you want. No scholars, no high-flying businessmen, no bankers, no politicians, not a single one who has been on I'm a Celebrity, get me out of here. I mean, what are you thinking? And I think Jesus' choice of disciples highlights the point very well that judging people by society standards is very different to how God does it. And so here is good news for all the little people like me. Anybody under five foot six? You've been the runt all your life, looked down on, last to be picked. God doesn't care that you're less than five foot six it doesn't matter to him at all appearance doesn't matter and we we live in a world where it seems obsessed by appearance the uk cosmetic industry alone is worth over 10 billion pounds a year people spend fortunes having tucks i don't know where they have their tucks not been bothered to find out to be honest They have tucks and nose jobs and they spend hours before they go out painting their faces and nails. But as far as God concerned, it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything. It's not important. God chooses despite height, despite appearance. He doesn't, he doesn't select by intellectual capacity. He doesn't worry about your IQ or how many degrees you've got. I, I love this. Read this from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Brothers and sisters, 
Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world. You see, God chooses not necessarily the brightest and best, not the most influential, not those from high society. Paul would have added in these days, not, certainly not the celebrity. He doesn't use people who are full of themselves and think they can do it on their own. Rather, he uses people who know they can't do it on their own and will trust in him and rely on him for help and strength and wisdom. That passage says, God chose the foolish, the weak, the lowly. One One of the commentaries calls that God's tool chest. I love that. That's what God uses to get his jobs done. God's tool chest. Brothers and sisters, this is you and me. We are God's tool chest. There's a Christian song that describes us as an army of ordinary people. And uh, in the world's eyes, that is what we are. Look, look around you at each other. We're just, it's seemingly ordinary people. I don't think there are any politicians here. No, certainly no celebrities. Excuse me if you think you are one, but I I don't see any. Ordinary people. But, as Peter wrote, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. There is nothing ordinary about that. You are chosen, and God has a purpose for you. He wants to use you. Now, I seriously doubt that you'll be called to be a king, or to be equality and all that, a queen, um, like David was. And if someone knocks at your door claiming to be the Archbishop of Canterbury, saying, God has chosen you to be the next monarch, I would keep the chain on the door, Don't look at the mitre in the flashy robes and ask for some form of identification because I don't think it will be from God. So probably not a king or a queen. But nonetheless, he has work for you to do. We each have a calling to be involved in his work. We were delighted to share with Rachel uh, um, at her ordination two weeks ago and we rejoice in her calling to the Anglican ministry and we sense, we sense God calling on her life, don't we? And her, her anointing for that task. But that's not for all of us. What a mixed up world would be if everyone was an ordained vicar. Hmm. The vast majority of us are called to ministries which are not as visible or high profile, but are just as important. Things like prayer. Kindness, service, administration, being salt and light in our communities. Cooking, listening, fixing, mending. More often than not, it's a case of using our God-given gifts and skills. And as Paul writes, whatever we do, whether in word or deed, doing it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do what God has gifted you in, And do it well to serve Jesus. 
But there are times when he calls you out of your comfort zone to do things which, we, which you have never done before. Uh, I'd been pastoring churches, and then I was between churches and looking to see what God had for me. And the next thing he had for me was managing a nursing home, something which I had no experience in or no qualifications in and was clearly ill-equipped to do. But God called me. And the thing is, when God calls, he anoints for the task. When God called David, he anointed him. From that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came on him in power. If God calls us to a task, he will anoint us. He will equip us. And this, of course, is very relevant in the context of our church life at the moment. As we begin to flesh out the mission action plan, there are going to be lots of opportunities to be involved. We've already heard about some of them this morning. And we all have a part to play. We are all called to be part of the ministry of the church in the community. This is not a bus. There are no passengers. For some, this will mean new areas of service that may seem scary. But as I've said, if God is calling you, he will equip you. And can I encourage you to be prayerful in these coming weeks and months as this mission action plan unfolds and begins to come into, into being? Ask God, what are you calling me to do? Sometimes I've heard the phrase, God can't use me because, you know, uh, I'm not holy enough. I haven't got many skills. I'm too old. I'm too short. All of those phrases which start, God can't use me because, are rubbish. They're wrong, and God has a job for every one of us. And we, we were fortunate. In uh, the, the first church where we serve, as assistant pastor, and I was sent out to see a lady who was shut in at home. And she was a marvelous lady. She, she didn't move out of her kitchen. And she was the most amazing prayer warrior that I have ever met. I went to encourage her, and I came away just blessed by being in her presence. There's something for all of us God has work for us to do. There's one other important aspect of this account of David's calling to which I think we must pay attention as well. And as we've already mentioned, God didn't consider outward appearance when choosing the king. And we're told the Lord looks at the heart. And in 1 Samuel 13, when Saul had been rejected by God, God he's told God has rejected him as king because of his disobedience. And Samuel tells him, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. A man after God's own heart. What a wonderful phrase that is. It's a phrase the Apostle Paul used to describe David as well. A man after God's own heart. What does it mean? What does it mean? What did God see when he looked into David's heart? It would be quite hard for us to know except that we have the Psalms. And 
David's poems. And, and in the Psalms, he pours out his heart. And so we can see what his heart is like. And several of them relate to specific situations. For example, if we want to know how David felt when he was challenged by Nathan about his adultery with Bathsheba, you turn to Psalm 51. And there you find David pouring out his heart. You find him brokenhearted over his sin. When he was on the run from Saul and captured by the Philistines, it's Psalm 56. And that shows his heart is steadfast and trusting in God, whatever the circumstances. So the Psalms reveal what was in David's heart. It's wonderful. And what we see in the Psalms is an intimate, personal relationship between David and the Lord. And that's, in a way, quite startling, because up to that point in the history of God's people, God has been seen as incredibly powerful, scary even, inaccessible. The people didn't actually want to be in God's presence, because they'd seen the pillar of fire and, and, and and the cloud, and they'd seen him do dramatic things, and they said to Moses, you go up the mountain, and we'll wait down here and listen. That's okay. When there was the Holy of Holies, they said, you go in the tent and meet God and come back and tell us what they didn't want to go into God's presence. And they had this uh, uh, very formal faith, largely uh, about keeping commandments and sacrifices through the priests. And then here is David, and he's talking about the Lord is my shepherd. And if you read the Psalms... The Psalms are David's love letter to the Lord. They're so intimate. And when you're writing love letters, you include everything that's going on, don't you? And you tell them how you feel, through the good times and the bad. And that's what we've got in the Psalms. I'm sure as the series unfolds, we'll, we'll be exploring David's heart through his varied adventures. And for the home groups this week, I'm suggesting that you search some of the Psalms to see what they reveal of David's heart. But briefly, just to get us started, there are a few uh, of the perhaps the more obvious things of what God saw. There was an unshakable faith. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him. Psalm 28. There was an understanding of God's holiness and the need to live a holy life. Uh, Psalm uh, 15. Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? He whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous. There's a commitment to God's ways. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior. And that's a really important one. You remember Saul was rejected as king for disobedience. He didn't want to do things God's way. He thought, I know, I'll do some other things that I want to do. And what God is looking for in the heart is someone who wants to do things his way, who's seeking his will, his way forward. And there's so much more. There's confidence in God's saving help when he's in trouble. There's knowing God's mercy and forgiveness after failure. There's rejoicing in God's provision and plans for him. In the Psalms are the heights of praise and worship and the lows during the failure of trouble. It's all there. And yet through them all, David's trust never falters. 
And that's what God saw in his heart. And the obvious question to ask then is, sorry, why? Why did David have this intimate relationship? Why did he have a heart that burned for God when others didn't? His brothers uh, didn't seem to have it. God had rejected them. He was too young and of the wrong tribe to be trained for priesthood. So how did he get to that point where he had this wonderful heart for God? It's been suggested, and it seems likely uh, explanation to me. This is from a, um, a commentary by Phil Moore. It says, he says this, David had been despised and dismissed all his life as the youngest and least important of Jesse's sons. He'd been forced to tend the family's flock of sheep, a job so menial and dirty that the Egyptians viewed shepherds as the lowest of the low. He therefore spent many hours alone with no other company but God. His spirit had been purified through many trials which taught him to surrender his heart to the Lord. That makes sense to me. Intimate relationships are built through spending time together. And it seems to me that's how David's heart was refined. He spent time on his own with God. And as we look at David, a man after God's own heart, the question we must then ask ourselves is, what does God see in my heart? What does God see in my heart? It's a searching question. It's one that we probably avoid if we can. And often we kid ourselves about the state of our hearts. Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things. And ain't that the truth? Our hearts are very complex. And even David, who saw, uh, sorry, even David, who God saw, had a good heart in tune with his own. Even David failed miserably a number of times. And he suffered that battle which Paul describes. You know the one where he says, there's the good that I want to do. You know, I, I desire to do the good, but I end up not doing it. And then there's the, the wrong stuff that I don't want to do. And that's what I seem to end up doing all the time. That battle. We're in good company with David and Paul in that what's in our hearts doesn't always match our actions. But what we learn through David is that God looks past our failures and he sees the love and faith that is deep within. So, what is it that God sees in our hearts? Inevitably, we're all different. In some hearts, maybe he sees just a flicker of love. In others, he sees a flame. In some, he sees a bonfire. I've met people here in this church who've got a bonfire of love burning in their heart for, for the Lord, and that's wonderful to see. In all of our hearts, probably, a smidgen of something which shouldn't be there, selfish desires or greed. And even David was aware that his heart was not entirely pure, and he prayed Lord, give me an undivided heart. So what is your response to what God's been saying this morning? 
What I'm very anxious about is that what you don't do is leaving is leave here feeling condemned over the state of your heart. God is not out to make you feel a failure this morning. It's not what he wants. But what he does want is to inspire you to long for what David had. That perhaps you'd say, Lord, you see in my heart a flicker of love for you. Please fan it into flame. I want to love you more. Lord, you see my heart that I, I do truly love you, but I long for an undivided heart. Lord, be at work in me that I too may have a heart like David's which beats in time to your heart. What's your response? I pray that for all of us it will be our desire that we'd have a heart like David's heart. A man after God's own heart. Amen.